Many years ago, Bill Cosby did a an album called Why Is There Air? <laughs> and uh, his answer was to fill up basketballs. Well, I'm going to ask a much larger, harder question. Why is there anything? Why is there matter? Why did God create stuff the way he did? Why is there seemingly a separation between a visible world and an invisible world? Why did he do it that way? I'm in danger of biting off way more than I can chew in this topic, but uh, I, I got to do it. You know, one of the dangers of writers and teachers is we sit in little cubicles by ourselves for a long time and think about things normal people maybe don't think about and then try to communicate to them about it, and it makes them want to run from us. But I think, I think a lot of people do think about this. Why is there anything? We live in an age of such materialistic focus that uh, thinking people who really do get in touch with their insides and think about things that matter maybe wonder about this. Why did God create a physical universe? I, I'm certainly not the first one to ever address this question. And, and it would take a, a huge historical survey to cover all that's already been examined on this subject from every discipline. I don't want to do that anyway. I really just want to talk to you and you and me interact about this whole subject. Why did God make? Obviously, I figure we can answer this question in 55 minutes or less. <laughs> okay, we're going to try. The fact that we believe God did create creates for us a whole set of other questions. We would point out that if he had not made the physical world with all of its dependencies and contingencies, need for food, water, air, danger of falling, danger of something falling on us, and then the fallen condition that produced disease and cruelty and ultimately death, well, things would be a lot different. I mean, why didn't God just create a spiritual world? We'll, we'll talk about that. Well, they things would be different, but would they be different in a way that would be better? I don't think so. Would it produce something that you would want? Would it produce something God would want? I don't. I don't think so. We're going to examine the question of why there is a physical universe, what God may be after by creating a physical universe, what the nature of that, quote, physical world is, and what the result of its having existed might mean for the universe to come. So let's get started, since we're going to cover all that in 55 minutes. Uh, in the Talmud, there's a, a picture of this question of why there's a physical world up against uh, a spiritual world, and it goes something like this. Rabbi Judah was asked by his student, Antoninus, why there is a physical and a spiritual being. And Antoninus asks his teacher, Rabbi Judah, uh, 
both the body and the soul will be able to free themselves on the day of judgment because the body can blame the soul for everything and the soul can blame the body for everything. And Rabbi Judah said, no, let me illustrate with a parable. To a human king who possessed a beautiful orchard in which were choice fruits, he set two watchmen over it, one lame and the other blind. The lame man said to the blind man, I can see some choice fruit in the orchard. Come, let's get, let me get on your back and we will uh, secure some to eat it. The lame man mounted the back of the blind man and they took the fruit and ate them. After a while, the owner of the orchard came and asked, What has become of the fruit? The lame man said to him, Have I legs that I could go get them? The blind man said to him, Have I eyes that I could see them? What did the king do? He ordered the lame man to mount the back of the blind man and judge them as one. Similarly, the Holy One, blessed be he, will in the hereafter take the soul, cast it into the body, and judge them both as one. Well, I don't know if that speaks to you or not, but sometimes, maybe I just think funny things, but... Sometimes I've wondered, you know, Lord, it seems like it could have been so much simpler if there was just one set of realities. And we wouldn't have all these arguments about visible versus invisible and uh, etc. But God knows more than I do. <laughs> and uh, he didn't do it that way. So obviously there's a reason why he didn't do it that way. And it's worth, I think, pursuing what that reason is, as much as Scripture will allow us to. Could we, as the species we are, have been made to be pure spirit instead of strange hybrids? We are hybrids, you know. We are amphibians, so to speak. We live part in the physical world and part in the spirit world. Now, later on in this study, we will point out that making too much of a differentiation between physical and spiritual is not accurate language, but for now, we'll use it. Well, the, quote, pure spirit thing has already been done. They're called angels. The best we can tell from Scripture, angels are pure spirit. Now, they can take on physical appearance from time to time and for certain purposes, but they are, by nature, pure spirit. They've been given a specific realm in which to dwell, and some of them willfully stepped outside that realm and set a rebellion in motion, which resulted in the fall from their original place. The best we know from Scripture, those who fell in this way have been offered no way back. There is no redemption for them. Is this because they were already pure spirit, and therefore, having thrown away all that can be offered already, there is therefore no other recourse but their damnation? We don't know. But the New Testament is clear that when it comes to the incarnation, the taking on of the physical body in order to reach down and save fallen humanity, it was not for fallen angels that he reached, but for fallen man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 says, For it was not to the angels, but to the descendants of Abraham that he held out a helping hand. Kassira translation. It seems to me that God is after a certain kind of relationship. He seeks union for himself with creatures which he has made, 
but which he has given full freedom of choice. This is the only formula for love. None else exists. We believe none else can exist. The fabric of reality which comes from the very nature of God himself seems to dictate that love must be the deciding factor in relationship, that love can only be the response of freedom, and that this freedom cannot exist apart from the creature's God is seeking freedom and love from and for. We have to live in a certain kind of existence for this to be so. Pure spirituality doesn't seem to provide the necessary backdrop for the kind of freedom and love God is looking for. So God forms a physical universe, spends a great deal of energy, if I can say it that way, arranging this vast engine of creation, all in order for the third planet in a small solar system to become the backdrop for the emerging of this creature God is wanting to relate to. It's a well-known fact among scientists that this planet exists as it does only because the symbiotic cooperation of the entire universe supports the Earth. If vast distances of space were different from what they are, that difference would set off motions in the universe which would domino into Earth destructively. Therefore, it's very right to say that the entire universe, not merely the solar system, but the cosmos, is merely a glorious backdrop for the drama of earth. God is extravagant where love and glory are concerned. This is known as the anthropic principle. As one famous atheist scientist said, quote, the earth seems to be set up as if someone had been expecting us. The, the physical world is lower than the, quote, pure spirit world. That fact doesn't seem to put God off at all. Again, hear the words of Hebrews chapter 2 as the writer quotes from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would descend in order to rescue him? That's the meaning of the word visit him. To descend in order to rescue. For he was made for a short time to be below the angels. Now this statement underscores the fact that God, for his own reasons, has formed a physical world, a world that is subject to time and in which freedom of choice has allowed for sin, disintegration, and ultimately something called death to exist. The key phrase for this study is for a short time. This state of affairs we know as the physical universe has a specific reason for existing. It will exist for a short time. In fact, time itself is a creature that only exists for a specific purpose and one day will be laid aside for another set of physics and another set of, for lack of a better word, time. Now the reason for this parenthesis in the universe is to allow for the coming forth of free lovers to emerge. When that process is completed, God will fold up the physical universe like an old garment, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 says, and the universe will be raised to a level of metaphysics we cannot even imagine. The Bible calls this new metaphysic the world to come, the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, other, other phrases. 
But the purpose of this parenthesis in the unfolding of God's purposes in creation for now is to bring forth creatures who freely choose and respond to love. The pure spirits which fell from their designated place, the Bible calls by various names, evil spirits, principalities and powers, demons, though some teachers make a difference between origins of demons and that of fallen angels, which we won't address here. All these are ruled over by the one greatest of fallen beings, Lucifer, who becomes Satan. The name Satan, adversary, is significant. For the very name implies that he's not only our adversary, but God's. Though we're only able to conjecture, there's good reason to believe that it was the very act of creating us that Lucifer, an ever-increasingly prideful spirit, arrogant and jealous for his pure spirituality of being, became too egotistical to bow to God's desire for a lower creature like man to emerge. The forming of this lower or physical realm was such an insult to the proud, pure Lucifer that he set himself to be God's adversary in this drama. Milton speaks of this in Paradise Lost, but listen to a conversation about it from Screwtape. Quote, Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid is one of the things that determined our father below to withdraw his support from him. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. In a previous passage, Screwtape complains that the enemy is not idle, speaking, of course, of God, and whenever one of the humans gets on his knees to pray that God, who is, quote, cynically indifferent to his position as a pure spirit, or for hours, pours out to the bowing animals revelation of himself to a shameless degree. (laughs) Here the arrogant reference to God's purity of spirit as being on a par with ours. We're equal. The satanic hatred of all things human, fleshly, earthly, is seen in the elaborate weaving of the satanic deception that came to be known as Gnosticism. At the risk of being overly simplistic, it is, I believe, fair to give a thumbnail sketch of Gnosticism as, among other things, the belief that only the original spirit realm is pure. That God, what the Gnostics call the real God, is pure spirit and therefore unknowable, unapproachable, unrelatable. That this unknowable pure spirit once set in motion the forces of creation, but that with each succeeding emerging, the purity decreased until finally there came forth a lower demiurge named Yahweh, who was so far removed from pure spirit that he actually had the perverse arrogance to create matter. I think this is absolutely revealing. We, we, and you know, what's amazing about it is how Satan has managed to, to through his public relations uh, work, uh, 
present himself as the great materialist. He's the one that people think of as the source of joy and pleasure and hedonistic fulfillment and sexual uh, prowess and all that. He's nothing of that at all. He, uh, Satan doesn't like sex. He doesn't like the the pleasure and fulfillment that comes from two people truly joined together in, in covenant relationship and the pleasure and fulfillment it gives. He hates that. He endures that. What he, what he, what he endures that for is in the hopes that by perverting and misusing it, he can produce agony, suffering, suicide, death, destruction. That's what he wants. He, God is the partier. God is the hedonist. God is the one who creates the fruit of the vine and and the the fulfillment of the marriage bed and the the laughter and celebration of children and the 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 all of life. Anyway, if we understand this satanic lie and see how prevalent it is among the pagans, we'll understand why the apostle Paul and John addresses it with statements about all the fullness of the Godhead residing in Jesus bodily, Colossians 2. And how John says, quote, Who is Antichrist but he who denies that Christ has come in the flesh? For the spirit of Gnosticism sought to destroy the union of God with man, so the constant attack on Christ's deity and his humanity, keep that in mind, it's just as Gnostic to speak of Jesus as so much God that he can't be man as to speak of him as so much man that he can't be God. The attempt to make all that is human and good evil in the form of hyperasceticism, which denies the good of food, of marriage, of pleasure in general, all these are more and more sent by the enemy to seek to destroy the message that God wants union and communion with his lower creatures in order that he might raise us up to himself as eventually the very higher uh, creation, higher, even above the angels, see, above pure spirits, even to the place of being the very bride of God the Son himself. No wonder there's this demonic muddle and confusion about sex and relationships and love and freedom and spirituality and the value of material world, the, the material world. The desire of God to bring forth for his son an eventual bride who will sit beside him and rule the coming metaphysical universe, one in which freedom has been protected so that love can come forth while evil will have no place in all or any aspect of it, flies in the face of the prideful spirit of darkness who thinks they have the right to be as they are simply because they have chosen against love, against freedom, and against incarnation. I wish we had more time just to, to address this whole issue of why there's such confusion sexually, why there's such confusion romantically, relationally, and in spirituality, all because of this satanic hatred for the ultimate goal. Two separate worlds? Maybe not. The Gnostic lie that only pure spirit is good and anything less, especially lower, is evil, 
has been the source of so much religious deception and caused so much confusion and pain through the centuries, we must ask ourselves if it may not be our unconscious bowing to a subtle form of the Gnostic lie that even causes us to ask the question, why did God make matter? Why does matter matter? Or why didn't God do things different? Why didn't he just make pure spirit? Why is there this battle? Hebrew cosmology makes no place for an extreme dichotomy between two worlds. Do you realize that? The Hebrew mind doesn't so much think in terms of visible and invisible like we Gentiles do. They think more in terms of this present world and the world to come. If you will think about it, there is a vast degree of difference between those two ways of speaking. For they are two ways of saying that express two ways of seeing. The typical Gentile way of speaking describes a spiritual world that no matter how much we try to avoid it implies to our thinking that which is less real. If it is spirit, then it is not solid. If it is not solid, it must be less than solid. This seems logical and true to our experience. But is it? If we do believe that the spirit world is the author of the physical world, how could it be possible then for the offspring to be greater than the parent? Unless, of course, you're speaking of Mary and Joseph, which we will be before we end here today. Go back to the reference of Hebrews chapter 1. The entire physical universe, and think for a moment about what that statement really means, the entire physical universe, will be folded up by the hand of its creator and put away like an old garment. And the, met- the metaphor for an old garment implies something that was useful but now no longer has use. He doesn't say he throws it away like a filthy rag. He says he folds it like an old garment. That, to me, is important. There's a, an old Christian Celtic phrase which I really love that refers to a holy place where the sense of the presence of the Lord is so real that there seems to be no veil of separation between the visible and the invisible. That phrase is, this is a thin place. I love that. Yet I still have to guard against a certain kind of mindset that that lovely phrase can conjure. For God has revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures that though he has not he is not a part of his creation, as in pantheism, nor is he described by his creation, as in all forms of idol worship. Yet he is certainly not against his creation. His glory is seen in his handiwork. His image is revealed in man and woman. His promise is present in the every sunrise and sunset. And the whisper of his plan for all of us is celebrated by the bursting forth of life out of winter, death, every springtime. He lives with us in the earth. And he's so committed to his physical creation that he has clearly stated that not only did he come to be among his people Israel at the beginning, but that he eventually will descend as the living tabernacle and dwell with his people on a new earth that is full of righteousness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
There's another reason why he seems to form matter as it is in this realm of existence. It is a vitally important one, maybe the most important of all. We've stated already that he created matter because there was a certain kind of response to him which he wanted, one which angels or pure spirits could not offer. What is it? We stated that already. It's freedom to respond to love. The angels responded to this event in one of two ways. I mean, angels do have freedom, and they can love, but there evidently is a limitation to the degree to which they can respond. And so some were insulted and rebelled with their new leader, Lucifer. Others became ministering spirits who served the hidden purposes of their creator, Lord. And Peter tells us that the angels actually greatly desire to look into the things of redemption and understand them. So they don't understand them. Who knows, but the day may come when the redeemed lovers of God will become the servants to the angels and bringing them into a new realm of love which they cannot enter now. That's more than we can say, and it is not to say that the holy angels are lacking or suffering in their present situation. They are happy, I'm, I'm quite sure, but maybe not as happy as their Lord intends them to one day be. But there's another reason beyond all that, kin to this, but even greater, and maybe of more import. I believe the other reason God had to create a physical universe and allow flesh and blood things, beings, who are also spirits, to abide for a time in a lower realm of existence than that afforded by pure spirits, is that in such a physical universe where love can be freely chosen, even at pain of self-sacrifice, that in such a realm it would be possible for evil which had been presented in the universe by Lucifer's rebellion could be destroyed out of the universe for all time and eternity while still protecting freedom and love. I'll try to unpack that statement in the time that we have remaining, but for now, let me say it again. God needed to create a physical universe where freedom of choice was possible, where love could either willfully be chosen or willfully be rejected. Not only so love could be real, but so its opposite, evil, could be destroyed out of the universe forever. Now, how, how does that work? Well, I don't know if I'll be able to even introduce it properly in the time we have left, but I'll try. See, I think God is on his way to something. Heaven, we call it, but we have a shallow view of it all. We're born, we live, we choose, we die, and we then go to heaven or hell. It all sounds like a big game we play, and with total losers and total winners, and any reason for it all seems either arbitrary or unknowable. And certainly there are many aspects to it all that are unknowable for now, and I know I must be careful not to go off into too much of my own fancy but I believe there's enough scripture to support the idea that the main thing God is about in the present history of the universe we know as earth is that he is going about destroying evil. Not just out of the earth. Not just out of us. Great as that is. 
But he's going about destroying evil out of all possibility of ever existing again while still securing freedom of will in the process. We'll return to this theme later, and we may have to return to it in whole later lectures together, but for now let's examine the question of whether there really are two separate worlds. The materialist, atheist, humanist says, no, there's only one, the physical one. For a century that point of view has been in the ascendancy, no longer. That view is fast losing ground. Why? Because the world of empirical research, which has been dominated by the materialist for the past 10 decades, has begun to report evidences that overthrow the platform materialism has maintained. It's not only the materialist who can gain from this news. Many of us who would never define ourselves as materialists, but who live really as if we were, can begin to stop seeing the false wall between the seen and the unseen, the real and the unreal, the spirit and the physical, as our humanist concepts have presented it. And we begin to move into a more Hebraic, more biblical view of the universe. Doing that means we will no longer see ourselves as existing in reality now and wondering about the less real realm to come where ghosts and spooks float around like transparent sheets, but we'll begin to live here and now the way we were meant to live all along by the Creator. We will practice His presence here now with us in all things, and we will move through our daily physical life not thinking just about the world to come, but of that world which is even present to us now, which Jesus refers to as the kingdom of God, which is already here with us and in us. A few years ago, I was teaching a small seminar to a group of various professionals on the subject of spiritual warfare in the end times. I had described the events in C.S. Lewis's great novel, That Hideous Strength, where the severed head of an old occultist had been attached to a giant computer. The story implies that it was hard to know which one energized which. Did the computer animate the head or vice versa? From that, we began to discuss the emerging of new technologies, many of which already are mind-boggling, not only for laymen like me, but even for the electronics experts. I then asked the class to think about this question. I said, at what point in our developing technology will we cross an invisible line and go from physics into metaphysics? After the class, a gentleman approached me who introduced himself as a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. He said, I can tell you already from my own educational experience that we don't know how to answer your question. We don't even know what electricity is. We know how it will behave in a given moment, but we don't know what it is. We are constantly dealing with forces which we can harness to some degree, but which we cannot fully predict or control. I worry at times where we are headed. I wish he and I could have spent more time together when I look into Scripture and see the strange prophecy of end times in which, for instance, an occult witch creates an object that is called in the text the image of the beast, which this witch has power to give animation to. I wonder 
Is this a picture of what I was trying to describe? The union of physics with occultism that leads into a demonic metaphysic that has the power to interact with the very force of hell itself? Then I think about motion picture theaters where that very thing is happening, where technicians and writers and special effects agents in Hollywood are able to put together images that are projected onto a screen through which the very powers of hell itself take possession of the minds and even the souls and bodies of the audience. Well, that's a negative version of this. Let's, Let's talk about the positive side of it. I want to offer some thoughts here taken from the research of scientists who are more and more coming to the conclusion that the entire physical universe is not as, quote, physical as we once thought, and that, in turn, the, quote, spiritual realm thought either to be unknowable or non-existent is not so mystical as once thought. The language of astrophysics, quantum mechanics, and other recent disciplines seem to struggle to find words to accurately tell us what they are trying to say. Sometimes they sound more like preachers than scientists, even when they don't mean to. Here are a few examples. Some are rather lengthy, but worth hearing. Physicist and Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg says in his book, The First Three Minutes, quote, It was not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, starting from a definite center and spreading out to engulf more and more of the circumferent air, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously everywhere, filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. Within the tiniest split second, the temperature hit 100,000 million degrees centigrade. This is much hotter than in the center of even the hottest star, so hot, in fact, that none of the components of ordinary matter, molecules or atoms, or even the nuclei of atoms, could have held together. He goes on to explain that as the matter rushed apart, the elementary particles, such as negatively charged electrons, positively charged positrons and neutrinos, which lack both electrical charge and mass, were set in motion And the universe was set in place by photons. In other words, the universe was filled with light. Sounds like a previous writer, Moses. And God said, light be. The actual Hebrew says, light be. And light was. Dr. Robert Jastrow of NASA's Goddard Space Center quotes mathematician Edward Milne's final statement in his highly respected work on relativity, which goes like this, quote, As to the first cause of the universe, I must leave that to the reader to insert, but our picture is incomplete without him, end quote. Now, I've never been impressed with what I consider to be the vapid argument that the size of the universe somehow does away with God. Where is the logic in that idea? The heavens declare his glory, then he is immensely glorious. Nor have I ever been able to grasp what's supposed to be so profound about the idea that once we know what makes a phenomenon work, then that somehow does away with any hope of it having a transcendent meaning. For instance, 
the rainbow is merely the refraction of light through water vapor. Then we understand that the refraction of light through water vapor now somehow is supposed to mean, see, God, we caught you. We know you did the trick, so that means you don't really exist. I find that sort of illogical hubris not only unimpressive, but embarrassingly stupid. So it's extra meaningful to me to hear physicists not only no longer saying such silly things, but actually stating the opposite. The more they learn of the building blocks of matter, the more awed they seem to be at the wisdom behind it all, and even more of the close proximity of what we once thought of as two separate worlds. This closeness of the once two is so uncomfortable that some scientists feel the need to warn their associates when they are seeking to verbalize their findings not to fall over into overtly spiritual language, they say. But it seems as truth comes more and more to the fore that language just can't help cooperating with it. We come to our main point so far in the form of this question. Is the gap between the physical and the spiritual, the material and the transcendent, as wide as we once thought it was? It seems noteworthy that all religions except Judaic Christian revelation deny the validity of the physical world. Islam can be included in that from the Judaic revelation upon which some of its premises are founded. All other religions are world-denying religions. This, to me, points out that the author of those religions is himself the matter-hater that we've described before. While the real God who created matter did not do so in order to purposefully bring a separation between himself and his material creation, but intended to use the material creation as a matrix by which a greater and even more glorious cosmology might come forth. In other words, what if the spirit world and the material world are not separate at all, but are moving in a great dance together towards some wonderful cosmic marriage with offspring from that union that we can't even imagine. This is why the healthy Jewish view of life, of L'chaim, celebrating life, beauty, marriage, children, food, sunrises, sunsets, crops, harvests, dancing, the human body, and on and on, is the real celebration of the real author of it all. Asceticism that denies fleshly independence from God is aiming at a good thing, but it will be badly missing the mark when it thinks it has the physical world as its enemy. Hebrew wisdom celebrates the wisdom that made the worlds. This is seen in this quote from Dr. Gerald Schroeder. It's a rather long and maybe a little hard to follow, but I believe it's very important, so please try to listen carefully. Science has revealed that the totality of the physical existence is the expression of a single base reality. Variegated fields of force or materialless ringlets of energy, each expressing itself in the material variety we see around us. Scientific inquiry of nature has exposed a metaphysical unity. The transcendent beauty we find in a sunset resonates with those physical roots. 
Einstein's discovery of the energy-matter relationship is far greater than merely stating that we can get X or Y kilocalories from Z grams of matter. Einstein's insight taught the world that every item, every plant and person and star in the galaxy is a form of condensed energy, energy in its tangible form. If you had lived all your life in Antarctica and seen only ice and snow, and then were shown a kettle out of which billowed a cloud of steam, could you have believed that the hot vapor was made of the same stuff as the frigid ice, that both were water, but water at different energy levels? We and all we see are frozen energy. If you heat any item far beyond the temperatures that break apart molecules and atoms, ultimately it will revert to pure energy, blending with the radiance of all existence. The matter-energy relationship, the quantum wave functions, have profound meaning. Science may be approaching the realization that the entire universe is an expression of information, wisdom, an idea. Just as atoms are tangible expressions of something as ethereal as energy. As the clay of matter is energy, so the building block of energy is information, wisdom. The universe is the expression of this wisdom. The universe is the expression of an idea. Let's stop here and look what Scripture has to say concerning this concept of Dr. Schroeder's. Quote, in Proverbs chapter 8, Wisdom is speaking, she's personified, and she says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no foundations abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had made no earth, nor fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a circle upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the foundations of the deep, and when he gave the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was with him as one brought up with him and was daily his delight rejoicing before him. Rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth. My delight were the sons of men. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established or prepared the universe. Psalm 104 verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom you have made them all. Go back with me for a moment, though, to Proverbs 8 again and look at verse 30 and 31. Listen to the New International Version of this statement, which is translated, quote, Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting 
in mankind. The oft-quoted but little understood opening words of Genesis affirm what physics is now seeking to affirm, that the idea in God's mind, the logos, set in motion a unified plan of action or wisdom which was executed by the bursting forth of light from his word. The entire universe was a picture of a wise and loving order prepared for the coming forth of a soon-to-be created being for whom this entire backdrop was prepared. Wisdom is rejoicing and dancing with delight before the Creator. What is she celebrating? She's celebrating God's workmanship, but most especially the coming forth of man himself. I would like to interject here that God seems to be a humanist in the sense if you define humanist as that who care, those who care for humankind, God loves man. Now, the 2100-year-old Aramaic translation of Genesis chapter 1 from the Hebrew amplifies the opening words of Genesis 1. Bereshit, the Hebrew word for in the beginning, is actually a compound word, be with Rashid, wisdom or first wisdom, so that the Aramaic opening of the creation story reads, with wisdom God created the heavens and the earth. The ongoing description of the unfolding creation, when read with mere English eyes, simply states that as each creative plan was unfolded, then the evening and the morning were the first day, etc., But this confuses us when we note that the sun is not created until the fourth day. But to understand the word evening, Erev, is not only being translated evening, but as disorder, chaos, mixture, as the sky looks at deep dusk. Then the word morning, Boker, as not merely light or morning, but as the ordering of chaos, the sorting of disorder, the bringing forth of meaning out of randomness. Then we have a unified order in the physics and the theology. In fact, again, the Aramaic translation of Genesis 1.31, and God saw that it was very good, is translated, and God was pleased that it was all a unified order. Order from chaos, light, and wisdom, God's idea, the Lagos, and the thin places. It seems that we approach the wrap-up of history, and God in his great mercy and wisdom is allowing all the disciplines of science to begin to dance before him like wisdom herself did at the beginning. Whether they want to dance or not, From the heights of astronomy to the depths of the smallest building blocks of nature, the laughter of the Trinity can be heard with each heart-stopping discovery of his fingerprints on matter. This is a great mercy that he would supply layer upon layer of evidence to an ever-increasingly sophisticated yet bereft materialist civilization. If you'll allow me, I need to let Dr. Schroeder speak to this some more. I quote, The uniformity is what makes chemistry possible. 
the predictable behavior of atoms reacting with other atoms to form molecules and molecules grouping together, repeatedly forming copies of the most amazingly intricate things, boggles the mind. The DNA of genetic material found in every one of the trillion cells of a newborn baby is but one example of the faithful reproducibility of nature. The physical world is a wonder-filled phenomenon of unity. The same laws that govern the 10,000 billion billion stars distributed among the 100 billion galaxies of our universe stretching over some 15 billion light years of space also governs chemical reactions within the tiniest single cell. I want to interject here. When Mary and I travel, it's always comforting to find evidences of the familiar in areas where we feel that we are far from home. (laughs) When I read Dr. Schroeder's statement here about the fingerprints that are still found in a hundred million light years away that are also found on a tiny baby, it gave me a sense that the universe is my home. Dr. Schroeder goes on to explain that many experiments which observe the dividing of wave energy from particle energy and the result of collisions of subatomic particles such as protons and electrons resulting in the observation of even smaller, more exotic components has brought scientists to the point of realizing that underneath it all there are even more ethereal events taking place. Call it wisdom or an idea or information. The Hebrew word for it is emet reality, or faithfulness. It would be the interface between the physical and the metaphysical, if that was understood, Dr. Schroeder says. In the case of our coming to understand the mystical activity underneath it all, the divide between the physical and the metaphysical would be no divide at all. It would merely be a continuum in which one leads smoothly into the other. If beneath the weirdness there is logic, a thought, a pre-existing law, we will have discovered the continuum that links the metaphysical with the physical. So puzzling is the intricacy of the reactions that power life that at times it seems as if wisdom must be an inherent characteristic of the universe. Our world contains hidden knowledge that is waiting to be expressed It seems as if a metaphysical substrata has been impressed upon all the physical world. End quote. Well, Dr. Schroeder's statement is agreed with in Scripture. The Scripture says the same thing. The whole creation is waiting in eager anticipation for the revealing of the sons of God For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pain of childbirth right up to the present moment. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit We also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our physical bodies. 
The pages of the Bible rustle with the promise of the day when the seeming separation of the two worlds will be displaced by the bursting in of the real upon the less real. When the shadowlands will be brought into the full light of joy by the removal of the veil through which we now can only see partially. Now we look through that veil and there is not much comfort for those who have lost loved ones by telling them that the two worlds are really only one and that we are not far from one another as the physical world seems to say we are. But it's still true. The one battling disease and seemingly disintegration of the body may not be greatly comforted by the message that this physical world is even less real than the spirit world that made it and that the day will come when death itself and all of its evil contingencies will be forever displaced by a life from the grave that can never die. But it is still so. The political prisoner is not helped much by the information that the branding iron used to torture him in his cell is actually made of the same stuff as his skin and that it is merely a difference in energy release that causes the terrible pain brought on by the hands of the demon-possessed torturers. But all that we know from Scripture and all that science is now amening says that one day, somehow, the author of all creation is going to put right all that is wrong. The Apostle Paul, who knew a great deal about physical abuse and suffering and torture and deprivation and danger, has a great deal of authority to say to us, quote, that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will soon be revealed both to us and in us. There are so many aspects of this study we have not addressed yet. I told you when we started, and I was biting off more than we could chew. But we're going to keep chewing, even if we have to go on into other sessions, like the death of death, the overthrow of evil, the securing of freedom of love, even though evil has been destroyed. As I warned you at the beginning, it was going to take some doing, and we've only really just started So we'll see where the Holy Spirit takes us in sessions ahead. But now in closing, especially as you enter the next few days that lead to the full celebration of the Incarnation, the time we call Christmas, think of it. The author himself, who formed the universe by his wisdom, rejoiced over the setting of the universe which was mainly for the purpose of supporting a small planet, third from the sun, in a remote part of the galaxy, so that upon that planet he might bring forth a being never before seen in all the reaches of all worlds, a being made in his very own image and likeness, a being who, like himself, would be a plurality in a unity, a being of such great value to the Creator that the Creator's wisdom danced with delight over the creation of both his planet and himself. Later, when that special creation willfully chose against love, the Creator himself entered that same stage through the very same passageway of a woman's womb 
in order that he might flesh out for them and for us the meaning of his wisdom, his Torah. He actually walked and talked and ate and slept and spoke with a distinctive Hebrew voice, felt distinctive Hebrew sentiments, loved, lived, laughed, cried, all just like you and I do. Then in a mystery we will never unpack, he laid himself down under the hands of death and by dying destroyed death. It seems to be that the physical universe had to exist for that destruction of death to occur. You might wisely say, well, there would have been no death had there been no physical world. You don't know that. Death is a spiritual force that God may have formed a physical trap in which to catch him in order to kill him. I keep tripping over my language, physical, spiritual. Christ has come through the womb of a woman. It's interesting to note, by the way, that the word mother and the word matter come from the same etymological root. Things that matter most, motherhood, family, love, marriage, unity. The incarnation wraps all those up in God coming to us through the womb of a woman. And why? Well, the Bible says his body was prepared that it might be offered up. This veil that separates the spiritual from the physical, this veil that is torn open on the cross, where the veil that hung in the holiest of all also was torn open, forever bringing together the two worlds. That veil is torn open now. Christ Mass, Christmas, speaks not only of the incarnation of the baby, but the physical body of the one who would offer himself so that the two worlds would be brought back together. This is what's taking place in the mystery of the Incarnation. His living Torah, the 33 years that he walked among us and lived among us to teach us how to live, which is why it is so important that we not just celebrate the beginning and the ending of his life, but that we pay attention to what he said to us the 33 years that he was among us. And so... As we come to the closing time here together, recognizing that we've got a lot more to address and we'll have to address in future sessions, it's nice to be able to say to you, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. What am I saying when I say that? Thank God, God came in the form of his son and died to break the power of death and tear down the wall of partition that separated us. And as a result of that, there can be a future, a renewal, a hope. With every rising sun of every new day, every passing year, we come closer and closer to the day when, as the Apostle Peter describes it, the elements will melt with a fervent heat and the works and all things in them will be burned up and there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. I'm saying all that when I say simply, 
Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you for the privilege of coming to speak to you every month. It means more to me than I can ever tell you. God bless you all. Bye-bye.